The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Mature audiences are cleared to proceed. <laughs> hey, this is really good. <laughs> what? What? The, the foreign dignitary. If you want to start a war, assassinate a foreign dignitary. <laughs> oh, that's. This one was actually kind of hard, harder to write than some of the others. For yeah. sure, because there's so little fucking tradecraft in it. Yeah. Let's go. David, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I miss the Cold War. Yeah, me too. What are we going to do about it? If we've learned anything from this podcast so far, there is one surefire way to start a war. And that's to assassinate a foreign dignitary in another country. That's the only way. But what would happen if some LARPing schmuck got caught up in the middle of our villainous plot? Oh no, that would be terrible. I think you mean terribly funny. Do you think that the Russians really play kerplunk with a chess clock? I don't see why they wouldn't. David! <laughs> are we here today to talk about the man who knew too little? Yes, we are. <laughs> Shall we begin? Murray of 1997 is at something of a crossroads as an actor. He's just about to surprise audiences with his dramatic chops in the early 2000s, but in 1997 he's still the wisecracking, wink-at-the-audience goofball that he's been playing for the previous 18 years. In some ways, The Man Who Knew Too Little represents the end of an era for Bill, but it was a damn fine era. I'm Todd. And I'm Dave, and we like to talk about spy movies. And when it came time for us to pick our first spy comedy, Dave was 100% firm on this one. Oh yeah! We're all just actors in the theater of life in this episode of Spies Like Us. So yeah, Dave, uh, you know, I pulled up uh, Murray's filmography and, and thinking about 1997, and I was thinking, like, I would see, like, a hard change, like, a hard transition from, like, the old Bill Murray of, like, uh, uh, whatchamacallit, um, Caddyshack, you know, uh, Ghostbusters. Stripes! No. Stripes! Oh, dude, trivia time. Do you know uh, who Stripes was written for? No. Cheech and Chong, dude. Are you serious? That's it was hilarious. It was supposed to be a Cheech and Chong movie. <laughs> did Hell, wait, did Hell Ramis write it and then wanted to make a Cheech and Chong? Because I thought he he did, did. I thought he wrote it, right? I'm not sure who wrote it, but uh, I heard it was written for Cheech and Chong, and they decided they didn't want to do it. So the studio was left with a a script that they had already bought uh, for a bunch of money or something. And they were just like Harold Ramis and Bill Murray get on it. That's pretty funny. <laughs> so you got like you got that old Bill Murray that 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 we all know, love and treasure, like like from the early days, and he still hasn't. But like I said, like like this edge gets fuzzy because I can see him in 1994's Ed Wood as Bunny Breckenridge. <laughs> I thought it was Beckenridge, but apparently it's Breckenridge. Um, you know, and where yeah, I, I I just feel like that's 
that's that's the first Bill Murray. Even though he's really only like tiny bit in that movie, like he's he's played for a certain kind of like wistfulness humor that is like much less broad than what we had associated with his brand up until then. Yeah. You know, Edward's probably like the first little hint at like a different Bill Murray that exists. It is in my opinion. And I, especially with Groundhog Day, you know, it wasn't super goofy. It was just kind of him. And he, he did a good job of playing that character. Yeah, but I guess what about I guess Groundhog Day would have came from Scrooge because he plays that executive type that's kind of like dismissive. I still then, haven't seen Scrooge. Oh my god, you gotta see Scrooge. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Um, but uh, like, is there is there a pathos to the Scrooge character? Well, I guess there there has to be because like necessarily like you can't tell the story of a Christmas Carol without. Uh, feeling like something behind the the mm, facade of of the character. Uh huh. Yeah, it's pretty much the same story, but in like modern day, like New York, where everybody's kind of mean and stuff, and he's kind of just this like executive that kind of is very dismissive, and uh, it's a little bit different of a Bill Murray than you kind of, or I guess we're used to that like kind of snarky pompous like goofball type you know now we now we kind of have him as like this dismissive executive that's just like a smart ass all the time that's like really mean to people and then you get that in groundhog day and then ed wood you know it's, it's like the first hint at like maybe an artsy side to bill murray that we might get right which wes anderson then like totally latches onto and and starts delivering like like regular in the two thousands we start getting our regular dose of what we consider as like our modern Bill Murray. Um, the, yeah, the... I mean, we, we get like Rushmore. Hey, what, what he was in Hamlet. Wait, I didn't know Bill Murray was. In... <laughs> That's pretty funny. I don't think I don't think I saw that version. Me either, but that's pretty funny. But, uh, no, yeah, we get Royal Tenenbaums in 01, Lost in Translation in 03, Coffee and Cigarettes, which is, like, as artsy as it gets. Yeah, that was him and Wu-Tang were in one of the shorts of Coffee and Cigarettes. That was pretty funny, actually, if you've never seen that. So, yeah, I just think, like, uh, like uh, the movie that we're going to talk about right now, though, like, as we're talking about this, like, transition of the actor in, in through his uh, transition from... Stripes to, uh, what would you say? Uh, like, uh, like people were totally blown away by uh, Lost in Translation, for instance, yeah. right? That was Absolutely. that was his purely dramatic role, and that was one I remember. Like, critics were just going off of the charts on saying, like, "Holy shit, this man is a different actor." absolutely has different potential than what anyone thought he was capable of. Yeah. And it's not like he still won't take a fucking paycheck to do a Garfield movie or something <laughs> later. Yeah. <laughs> but in a, in a lot of ways, I, I think, uh, I think, uh, what is this? 1997? Yeah. Yes. 1997, the man who knew too little. It's still, uh, really mostly that old it's kind of the end 
I think, of his goofy period. Yeah. But there's. I mean, we we get we get we get old Bill Murray in this movie. We've we've heard this whole talk about like like artsy Bill Murray. We we definitely got old Bill Murray in this movie. This is probably one of the last that we get like a purely. Well, I don't know. Think of Garfield. <laughs> right, I know. There's yeah. exceptions to this rule. It's fuzzy, but there's yeah. definitely a transition. I think this is part of it. Let's head to the briefing room, break down the tradecraft, what little there fucking is. <laughs> this movie. You ready to go? Let's go. Alright, let's hit it. Voice pattern recognized. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. David, the man who knew too little was your choice, and uh, I just want to—I just want to hear from you. Like, what was your, what was your, what, what's your experience? What's your prior experience with this film? When did you well, first I, see it? I, my 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 family in general, my uncle and my mom and stuff are really big Bill Murray fans. So I I saw it like about three or four times after it went to video. Um. And it just hit me really quickly because, you know, as we started out our show with the man who knew too much and we were discussing in our like blocks of movies that we're doing, we got to do at least one funny movie. And I thought it would be a good kind of circling back with the man who knew too little. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fun. It's it's a super fun bookend. What was your um, like what what do you think were like your favorite Bill Murray roles that that you loved him for like prior to this movie coming across your, your field of view. Oh, like just favorite Bill Murray. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know where to count, you know, like Caddyshack, uh, Rushmore. Uh, let's see. Lost in translation is definitely one of my favorites. Ghostbusters. Right. You know, he's such now, a wide now range. Several, Zombie right. land. <laughs> Set, now, a lot of those you mentioned other than Caddyshack hadn't come out yet. Yeah, that's right. Oh, oh, okay. So prior to this movie, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it would have just been Ghostbusters and Caddyshack. Probably Groundhog Day. Groundhog. Oh, that's right, Groundhog Day. Yeah, yeah. Kingpin Those... is the year before this. Oh, I definitely had seen Kingpin before this. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm looking at I'm looking at his list. There's also this movie Scrooged, which I keep getting told i need to see oh uh, my god you've never seen scrooged no i yeah That's one of my favorite movies you definitely gotta see it it's it's hilarious like of the list of christmas carol remakes or i guess renditions it's it's definitely up there you know like muppets christmas carol and scrooged are definitely uh up up there for like best renditions <laughs> now i hadn't seen this movie up until last week um for this podcast and uh when i first when i first on my first watch through or at least the majority of my first watch through i was kind of like are we really gonna do this there's like there's like no spying in it at all but on no, rewatching, I... taking notes yeah. like it's it i've warmed up to it it's yeah. uh i think like because on my first watch i think i went into it a little too analytical you yeah. know like i was ready to take notes and I don't think that's the mental space you want to be in to enjoy this movie. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. I mean, the even the characters that are serious, like them being so serious adds a lot to the comedy. Like you have the professionals 
and then this they're just like in this like uh just just off off the wall screwball parody of the spy genre and there's like very actually it was kind of tough for us to kind of go through the tradecraft because there was li very little it is a little it is a little weird for a comedy in that like um there's only a couple of funny characters in the movie well actually no now i can count like I can count like five that get comedy bits, but yeah, you're right. Like most of the cast is playing it straight. Yeah. Um, you know, I've but seen like the cast that's playing it straight is funny. Like the the like you know Boris was hilarious, and he's like the most professional of all of them. You know. Yeah, like, he's I, he's one of the ones I consider a comedic role. Yeah. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. But, uh, yeah, it's almost a one-man show, though, with Bill Murray at the center. And I thought it was – I thought he was definitely adequate to it, and it was fun seeing him, uh, if if you like Bill Murray. Can I throw out an, an idea, though, that I was thinking, like, of who else I think possibly could have been better in this movie? Oh, I'd to like play, to play uh, Wallace. Wallace. Wallace yeah. Ritchie, yeah. Who? I think I would like to see this movie with Chevy Chase. What oh, do you think of that? Fun. Didn't he do a, a spy spoof? I Fle the Fletch movies might be yeah. something like that, but not yeah. quite. I feel, I feel like he did. So, yeah, I think it was Fletch. Maybe, I don't know. We'll look into it. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to maybe keep a note for possible future uh, spies like us title. Um, but yeah, the, the comedic bits, um, they they actually improved for me on rewatching. Like, I found myself laughing more on the third time around than on the first, if that makes any sense. Because some of it is actually kind of subtle. Yeah. yeah. Some, some of the best comedic bits are kind of subtle. Let's put it mm -hmm. that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, another thing I want to say is that... Um, the script is actually really tight. Like, um, yeah, it was based on a novel. Yes. Yeah. But you know, like how, like I'm always, um, I'm always prying around, like, like all of our movies that we've done so far, like, like 1934, like 1956, man who knew too much. I'm like, why the fuck is this guy knocking on the door? It makes no sense. And we have to like come up with some reason, like, cause it's not yeah. explained. Right. Uh, why are the, why is Louis Bernard uh, and his friends in Switzerland? It's right. it's not explained. We have to figure it out. And sometimes I pry around. And there's stuff that actually doesn't really make sense, and I have to come up with some like I don't know, uh, use some duct tape and and some <laughs> spare parts right. to like make up a plausible theory that that fits in there. Right. Tons of mental gymnastics. Yeah. I found zero in this. I found I found zero in this. I think every single thing happens uh, for a reason, and the reason is explicitly told to us as the audience. Yeah, I actually found one that really bugged me, but What's then that? I kind of had it. Nikolai. Wanna... Okay. Oh, I, I don't know if we want to save this for later or if it's a spoiler, but you know when he after the dressing room scene, and he runs yes, out. Yes. Well, the the guy that's like the PA the 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 person running the show, the showrunner, I guess, in the back is like, "Come on, Nikolai! Where the hell? Where the hell happened to Nikolai? You know, they obviously knew that they, they had the right count of guys. So where's where's Nikolai? But but then 
he didn't have a doll. Like every other guy had a doll. So then I'm like, well, maybe they did have the right count. But then, like, where's this Nikolai guy? Why were they waiting? You know, with the clapping before he came on, they were obviously waiting for him. You know, so that was the only thing that that I could find. But but other than that, you're right. Like there was there was nothing like odd or weird. That is that wasn't really explained. that is only good for a paltry minus one director point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it wasn't even that big of a deal. <laughs> everything else, everything else, everyone is where there should be that it makes sense and they go to the places they would go given the situation and the majority of the film uh happens in real time there's only like two time gaps and both of them make sense there's a there's a cuz let's see i think the whole movie well except for the for the front part where he shows up in england once the story gets going uh there's one little gap when Boris gets called in and then there's another little gap between when they get told to go to the hotel and when they arrive and they get told to go to the hotel at a certain time. And in the very next scene, they're showing up at that certain time other than those two gaps. And even those like make perfect sense because it's supposed to be take place over the course of three and a half hours. Yeah. And so then those two gaps would explain the two missing blocks of time. And because the movie's not three hours, it's only an hour and a half. Right, but every everything else is in, in real time, like even as you bounce back between uh, different characters. Yeah. Which, of course, makes sense that this movie would go that way because it is uh, a uh, ticking ticking clock plot. Yeah, like a, it's a thriller. There's a time element, right? Right. There's, uh, yeah, exactly. Something's going to happen at midnight. Right, <laughs> Um, and we know that pretty much like very early. And so like the whole time as the audience, we know that like, this has got to be resolved somehow, somehow. And we, you know, as an audience, cause it's a movie, we know it's not going to be resolved at 1030. We know it's going to fucking be resolved at 1159. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, other than that though, I mean, of course you got to point out the whole movie is premised on a huge series of astonishing unrealistic coincidences yeah but if you take those coincidences for granted then there's nothing to complain about like mechanically as far as like how the events play out it's pretty good yeah i completely agree you can find on some sites um or some reviews they'll describe this can be it's described as a parody of the man who knew too much that's not especially apt there's nothing in common between the two stories. Uh, I mean, other than like it's uh, uh, a, a, an aloof uh, characters that kind of fall into the world, but yeah, there's not really like a direct tie to tie. Right. It's just got the the clever title, which is it's a clever one. I like it. Um, but uh, rolling along with how like uh, the the movie gets started, uh, our hero Wallace. Uh, it's his birthday and he's shown up in England to surprise his birthday, surprise his brother on his own birthday, which is kind of weird, but whatever. Um, we, we cut over and we, we get, we get treated to a little, uh, kind of a cinematic explanation of the theater of life, which is important because this is the mechanic that we're going to use to have Wallace think that he's in basically a, a play it's like a live theater a role-playing 
an evening of role-playing entertainment. Yeah. And that's the theater of life. They, uh, they, you, they take your money and they slot you into like the starring role in a spy thriller, kind of like in Total Recall, except without the science fiction, right? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, cool. So that gets shown to us so that we basically kind of understand like how it works. And then just as uh, Wallace's brother, uh, who I'm just going to call the brother, not try to remember his name, um, drops. Now, Wallace is disappointed that his brother can't hang out with him on his birthday, but his brother promises him, promises him that they'll smoke these two Cuban cigars before midnight. And, and that is like his, his promise that they will have done something to celebrate Wallace's birthday. That's important because now Wallace has a plan of something he needs to get done before midnight. The villains, which we will discuss, also have a plan of something that's going to go on in, at midnight. Which is going to be, it's, it's the major coincidence of the film that uh, both the hero and the protagonists are, are on the same timetable. Right. And the and, name of Cigars was an interesting name as well. Yes. Go ahead. Tell us about that. Well, they're called Ambassadors. I, I guess is the brand name of the cigars. Which sounds, become, like a, sounds like a classy cigar to me. Very, very classy. But we later, we later end up, uh, that the name of those cigars becomes important for uh, this coincidence Todd is kind of set up for us. Yeah. It's, it's a nice little part of it. We'll mention it when it comes up. Yeah. Take us from the phone booth. This is so when... Yeah, so th this is this is when uh, Wallace starts the theater of life. His brother drives him out, trying to get him out of the house because he's got to entertain some guests or whatever. And the phone booth rings. It, it starts at a phone booth, and the phone rings. Um, and uh, but we were we're told it we, uh, the phone rings early, according to Wallace. Uh, so this this is kind of set up um, our coincidental mishap. Uh, and the man on the other line calls him Spencer. So Wallace assumes the name Spencer and gets an address from Dagenhurst, who is our primary villain at this point. And we'll explain the plans uh, later. He, he writes Spencer and the address that he's given on a card that's just like, like taped to the wall of the phone booth. That's why it's important uh, for the story that Bill Murray's character wrote the name Spencer and the address on the card because otherwise our Spencer wouldn't have had any way of getting the address. Right. And he wouldn't have gotten to Lori's place. And, and right. And so <laughs> like, and why does he look at an address, you know, just, that's just on a random card. Why does it mean something to him? It's well, because, because it's got his fucking name on it. Right. Yeah. Or his code name or whatever. I just a, wanted to plug that, as, to go at. plug that as, as clever, you know, the, the Very clever, clever it, writing. Yes. It makes sense that Bill Murray would jot it down, what he just got told. Right. And it's critical to put them both on the same path, to basically give them both the same address without them ever having met. Right. Exactly. And, th and this is actually good. I mean, it was very clever writing to set up the story, but I'm actually going to mark this as my number two worst tradecraft. Uh, I mean, I know Bill Murray's not a spy master or anything, but... You know, if we're going to analyze any of our best and worst for this movie, I'm, I'm going to put this for my number two. 
he should have not left the information just hanging out in the public, especially with the code name and the address. Um, but I mean, like we'll give him a pass because uh, he he's just kind of oblivious to what's going on. But uh, yeah, yeah, leaving leaving this information just hanging out uh, is it was it was a bad move on his part. Yeah, I generally don't like giving like uh, best and worst trade crafts to people that aren't expected to know any better mm-hmm. but i guess you know this is kind of a shallow pool to fish from so i'll yeah, let it slide exactly. yeah yeah <laughs> uh wallace heads to the address where he meets Lori, who's going to be our our other our heroine yeah. uh that's going to hang out with him for most of the movie um her sugar daddy is the british defense minister and he is part of the villain's plot she has a bundle of letters that detail the evil plot, and she plans to use them as blackmail. The villains are on to her, though, and so Dagenhurst has sent Spencer to eliminate her and get the letters, but Wallace gets there first. Right. Um, and that's how they meet. Uh, I'll, give, I'll give negative spy points for planning the plot out in correspondence. Yeah, like mailing out letters, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it was a uh, it was a contender for one of my worst tradecrafts, but I found some better ones. Yeah. Um, one of my I gotta flag it. One of my best lines in the movie. What are you, CIA, mafia? Both. Yeah. <laughs> Both. <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's... CIA and mafia. <laughs> I fucking love it. I want to see that movie. Yeah, I want to see that movie too. Yeah. Uh, Wallace scares off the defense minister when he shows up. Uh, Lori distracts Wallace and goes for the letters where she's hidden them in the kitchen, and she gets attacked there by the real Spencer, who's shown up. Wallace scares him off as well. Lori and Wallace leave together. So now I think it's a good time to group up the villains, because we were... Oh, well, we're about to meet them all. we got to meet one more, or two more. Um, But but here we kind of... All the villains are introduced to us so that we're, we know who they all are, because there's actually a bunch of them. Um, and we uh, get the information about like what the plot is, pretty much. Um, the defense minister that Wallace just scared away from the house calls up Dagenhurst, who's our main villain, with the weird bad, weird, weird bad news. He doesn't know what just happened, just that Spencer just tried to shoot him. Right. And they didn't he didn't he didn't know that they were calling a hit on Lori. He did not know that, that's right. right. Yeah. Dagenhurst turns around and shares that with his Russian co-conspirator, who's Sergey. And Sergey in turn calls in Boris the Butcher from Deep Cover as kind of a cleanup guy. Who was literally a butcher. Yes. Or at <laughs> least that's his cover. Yeah. I believe at the end of the movie he he announces his plans to retire from uh killing this, people and, this and massive world, yeah. yeah and become a butcher for real. So yeah, so let's just make sure we know who all, all these people are. Again, Dagenhurst, that's our main villain, a British spy master of some sort. It's not exactly specified. We're not even we'll... sure that he works for MI6 or anything. He he's in charge of something. Yeah. It looks like yeah. Yeah, and he's he's unhappy about his budget, and he's unhappy that the Cold War is kind of winding down, 
right. that there's not a whole bunch of stuff for him to do anymore. And apparently he's like, like the equipment in his spy master headquarters is a little out outdated and and he wants new stuff and he wants when we see him in his uh spy master headquarters it's an empty place there's yeah. a bunch of desks there's a bunch of phones it looks like it you know was once maybe a hub of you know uh buzzing and activity and calls coming in and spies being sent on missions and information being shared and stuff but right now it's just him and like his one little toady guy his one little uh helper yeah uh, Embleton is the defense minister. He's not especially important, but he's uh, he's there to be as a link for Wallace to have found Lori and and for them to be connected. Spencer is the guy that Dagenhurst sent in to clean Lori. Sergey is a Russian spymaster of some sort. Again, not specified, but he's working hand in hand with Dagenhurst, and they want to reignite the Cold War together. And finally, Boris is the guy that they send in to deal with Spencer, but now he's going to end up mistaking Wallace for Spencer. Because Wallace is acting like Spencer. Right. Something like that. So what connects the two films uh, is that we have foreign diplomats, mainly Russian ambassadors, uh, in a different country, Great Britain, and... In this room are a ton of world uh, diplomats. And so the plan of the villains is to blow up this room, which I guess would cause distrust uh, on who was behind the attack and probably reignite the Cold War. So you're so, right. I didn't think about that. I didn't think about that. At core, both or all three movies involve a villainous plot to assassinate a visiting an ambassador who's visiting London. Right. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah. Um, and, uh... Oh, what they're going to do is put it in a Russian doll, because there's, like, some cultural performance at the beginning. So they have one of those Russian dolls that, you know, the stacking dolls that they planted a bomb in, and they're going to put it, like, right in front of where the ambassadors are sitting. Excellent. Um, and actually, this is where the cigars pay off. Uh, because, remember, those cigars were called ambassadors. Well, when uh, uh, Wallace, who's posing as Spencer, um, talks to our main villains, he he not only mentions the time, which is about 1130-ish, uh, so, you know, we have to, that's when we have to wrap up this story. And uh, he also mentions... We're going to ignite those ambassadors. We're going to light those ambassadors up. He also could have said smoke the smoke some ambassadors. Smoke some ambassadors, <laughs> you know. And and they were like, my God, he knows everything. You know, which, which kind of tells us that uh, uh, Dagenhurst didn't tell the real Spencer about the plot with Tom, why he's supposed to take out Lori, um, which... Uh, you know, we, we got to give them some spy points for not doing that. Sure. Yeah, so that's why it's important. That, that's why the cigars, I thought, was a really genius bit because that turns, in the villain's mind, that turns, along, along with some other things, but I think that's the important one, that turns him from just being a Spencer that has gone rogue on them for no reason into 
a Spencer that has turned on them, that knows about their plot, and is going to foil it, which is a much more dangerous thing. Um, much dangerous. And, and this is kind of where a lot of the drama really happens. And even though that doesn't, like, you know, because the movie, like, quirks its way into the way of their plans, that I gave them my number one best tradecraft for keeping Spencer in the dark. That's a good one. Right. Yeah. He, that he was a clever carpum, carp, carpum, carp, compartmentalizing information. Gesundheit. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's important to compartmentalize information. I think in a, in a lesser film... Uh, even like a, you know, light comedy like this, um, you know, like all the villains would know everything about the plot, but this guy, Spencer, he's just a gun. He just needs to go in and, and kill a girl and get some letters. He doesn't know what needs to be in the letters. No, not at all. Right. But then that's why they're shocked and surprised to find out that Spencer does know about their plot. So it's important for the movie, and it also just makes sense. Number one best trick. At this point, this is before... Uh, they realize that Wallace is not actually Spencer. They, 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 at this point, they still think Wallace is Spencer, right? Later, they're gonna. They're, later, they're gonna put it together, and but they're gonna make the mistaken uh, idea that Spencer is like an American CIA super agent that took Spencer out, assumed his role briefly, and is now coming at them. Right. Yeah. Again, the string of coincidences, like, it works, it really works so well, and it really works under very close scrutiny. Absolutely. So, something I like about this movie. This movie is very, very well written. It's very, like, uh, you know, like, like a, it's, it's clockwork. It's clockwork scripting. Yeah. I, like, all the pieces fit. It's, it, like, all the threads connect. You know, it's, I, I think it was very, very well written. Um, but uh, before we move on to our next spot, I wanted to talk about my number three best tradecraft, uh, just out, out of left field, mainly because it's the the moment has nothing to do with the main plot. And and like uh, Todd and I discussed, uh, there was there wasn't a whole lot of fish in the pond trying to pull out tradecraft. But uh, at one point, uh, Wallace takes Lori back to his brother's house, where his brother's entertaining some uh, uh, very important guests. And uh, he runs in and acts a fool and mentions Lori. He kind of calls her the, the defense minister's call girl and, and talks about how his brother paid for her. And he makes a fool of himself in front of these very, very, very important guests. Um, and uh, when he leaves, um, the very important guest, very shocked and very concerned and very uh, weirded out, asks, uh, what, what, what clutching their pearls? clutching their pearls you know they're probably the worst thing ever for this dinner for his brother who's trying to entertain these very important guests for like some big business deal or something now has his like goofy brother show up and embarrass him and and they are so what business is your brother in and the the brother's wife says he's in the movie business and they go ah like like that answered the question like they just they just like didn't even bat an eye they're like oh okay we get it, because these uh, these guests are like just Germans, like very very how to like like to to how to be people or whatever. Very uh, wealthy, very connected, uh, important customer or clients that he's trying to entertain. 
So they're all Europeans, and they just think like American movie star. Oh, that's why. He's just weird. He's just running around with prostitutes. That's the movie business. And so I put that down as my best tra third best tradecraft, the wife thinking on her feet to kind of clean up this embarrassing situation. Oh, he's in the movie business. And, and it worked. Like, and I thought, I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, it's funny. We are really scraping for this one. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely scraping. Let's hope. Let's hope. Let's see. Uh, yeah, let's hope your number two and number one are a little, a little meatier. Yeah. <laughs> they did go back to the brother's house, uh, I guess, to lay low for a while. I'm not sure what the purpose of that was. Because they're going to end up going right back to the defense minister's house after this. But uh, it did give the villains some time to like kind of freak out about what's going on and for Boris to come into play. Right. Right. Because that's another, right, cause that's another part of the movie that isn't in real time. Because Boris needs time between being called out of deep cover right. to, to actually get apprised of what the mission is and to be set into motion. And to get where he's going. You know, so, so yeah, so like for me, it doesn't make sense that Wallace and Lori uh, leave the house, the defense minister's house for a while when they're just going to end up going right back. But it is necessary, again, for all the time uh, frames of all the different actors in play to, to get their stuff done. So again, clockwork. Maybe not the tightest bit of clockwork in the script, but it was it was necessary for them to leave the house for a while and then come back. Right. When they do come back, uh, now Lori's here to uh, get the letters, but she still doesn't trust Spencer, which is actually Wallace. Um, so, you know, I mean, if she did trust him, for instance, she could have just grabbed the letters before they left the house the first time, right? Well, other than they were up on the thing and uh, the real Spencer was, like, attacking her and they had to get away from him. Yeah, but they drove him off. She could have right oh, then right. in yes. the kitchen, right then, just reached yeah. up and taken the letters. Right, right, right. But that would have been in front of Spencer and she doesn't want Spencer to see that oh. she has the letters. Right, when I right. say Spencer, right. I mean she yes. thinks it's Spencer. She right. doesn't know who attacked her. That was really Spencer. Now it's getting really confusing. Yeah. The point is, the point is, she doesn't trust the man who she's with, who she believes to be Spencer. So instead of just, again, instead of just going into the house, taking the letters, she tries to divert him to go upstairs. I think she says, like, why don't you, oh, she, I think she tells him where the letters are upstairs. Which oh, is and I go look for are. them, something like that, yeah. Yeah, like, you go get the letters from my room, and I... We'll stay here and, and keep guard. And her little plan is, as soon as he goes upstairs, she'll just grab the letters and probably book it. Right. Um, so I'm going to give her plus two, at least half-ass spy points for this little ruse. Right. She, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't go for it because, uh, and again, Bill Murray's character, Wallace, is, he's just acting, but even just in his acting role, uh, he, you know, says some funny thing about, like, well, you know, the last time that... I left you alone, like, bad stuff happens, so you, you come with me. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, they're not the only people who went to the house. Boris and the real Spencer... Returned to the house. From here on out, 
from here on out, every time I mean the real Spencer, I'm going to call him the real Spencer. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, just to make sure it's absolutely clear. But apparently both Boris and the real Spencer went back to the house to look for the letters. Spencer found the letters. We don't know this yet. But we're, this is what we're going to find out. Spencer found the letters. Boris killed Spencer, but didn't find the letters on Spencer's person. Well, he had to take off because the, they had just walked in the house and Boris came privy to it. So he had to take off. And right. Have to kind of find them. You, you could see that he was like cutting open pillows. He was tossing the place looking for the letters. But when Wallace and Laurie entered the house, he got spooked and ran off. Right. Dagenhurst makes contact with Wallace by what Dagenhurst calls uh Dagenhurst calls Spencer's little cigarette phone radio that he has. Uh-huh. And Wallace happens to be in the room when this is going on, and so he picks it up and... Yeah, it's like a, it's like a radio that's hidden in a cigarette case. Yeah. Like a two-way radio. I think they call it a communicator at some point. I think I... that might have been a Star Trek joke. Yeah. <laughs> um... But so uh, Wallace picks up the cigarette radio when it rings and talks to Dagenhurst. Presumably he recognizes this as the name from what he thinks is the theater of life that gave him the address in the first place. Because this is the same voice talking to him that was the one that gave him the name Spencer in the phone booth earlier. That's right. And then uh, they tell him, well, I mean, they used a bunch of weird spy jargon. Uh, like in talking about they, they, they tell him that she, he needs to get rid of the girl. So to basically, which is what his job was to do, right? Re- yeah, originally. Well, to them, it's still the job. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, right. So they want to know, like, did have you done it yet? Have you done the job yet? And uh, you know, which is the job is to kill the girl and. Uh, eliminate any evidence, like get rid of the body. Basically, kill the girl, get rid of the body. But they never say kill the girl or get rid of the body. Instead, they use, like you say, some spy jargon. They use a whole, like, uh, taking a shit and flushing it, basically. Yeah. Um, Metaphor. So, obviously, uh, that kind of confuses our Bill Murray character. Oh, because uh, Lori actually went to the loo, quote unquote, and they're using they're using a bunch of bathroom jargon, and she got away from him. And she but... happens to be in the bathroom while they're using this right spy jargon about killing her. Right. Um. So yeah, he thinks that's what they're talking about. She's overhearing it. She knows what they are actually talking about. But um, my number two best tradecraft. Not not too tough a one for me, but uh, just the fact that Dagenhurst and his uh, little assistant guy are using the jargon because here they're on a radio transmission, and radio transmissions are pretty easy to listen in on. Right. It's different. I mean, a phone is obviously not secure, but it's much more secure than the radio. Right. So, yeah, number two best tradecraft. Uh, not talking about killing not not specifically saying did you kill the girl right 
and get and, to the body. And, and, and he actually takes a shot at her uh, and misses from three feet away. He does, he's unaware that it's a real gun. And uh, uh, she freaks out because she Why almost got shot. take a shot at her? Well, because he has a gun and they just told him that he has to kill her. So uh, he thinks it's part of the act. Yeah, he thinks it's part of the act, and and basically he goes, okay, well maybe I got to shoot her. Um, but uh, uh, they 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 make some discussion, and he misses, and she kind of woos him a little bit, and they they move on to kind of work together. But right after she walks out, he uh, looks down the barrel of the gun, and uh, I'm gonna make that my number three worst tradecraft. Uh, I mean, even though we know that uh, Wallace is kind of uh i guess oblivious to what's really going on um you know if if he he had shot that gun before and and shot the defense minister's phone and um it's obviously loud so even if it had blanks or something i, w- I wouldn't be pointing it at my face so i, I don't know I'm, I'm just gonna call uh looking down a barrel bad bad firearm safety my number three worst tradecraft i'm gonna give some negative spy points to the fact that dagenhurst uh called sergey first when they got the the call from uh what was his name edgerton uh embleton the defense minister that spencer tried to kill him they what they did was they called sergey in russia or maybe he's not in russia i guess he's not in russia at this point no he's not he's he's in london because otherwise he wouldn't have time to get from russia to to england to be part of the thing um, yeah, so he's in, in cover. Actually, it's a shipping company or something when they call him, um, is, is what his cover is in London. The thing I wanted to say, though, like, they call Sergey, and Sergey calls in Boris, and they waited this long. You know, you can look at the clock and how much time has gone on, including you had all that time for Boris to come out of deep cover and get put into place and for them to go back to the brother's house and wait a while and then come back to this house. And it's only just now that they're calling Spencer. This is what they should have done. I think I screwed up. This should have been on my, on my number high worst tradecrafts because they had access to his cigarette radio the whole time. They should have called him first thing right after Embleton uh, called them. Right. Retroactively, I'm calling this one of my worst trade crafts. I'll, I'll trade it out for one of the other ones. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. That's, yeah, that was pretty silly. Let's see. Have I have I listed a worst yet? I don't think I have. Yeah. Yeah, my worsts haven't come up. But this one, this one's going to replace one of those three. Unless those three are actually, like, really good. I forget. We're going to find out. Well, anyway, Lori finds that the letters are missing downstairs, uh, and and Wallace actually finds them be- behind Spencer's body while he's um, still upstairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's better. It's really important that he ends up finding the letters and not her, because now he has some leverage, right, uh, against her, right. Um, and then uh, two two armed quote unquote plumbers. Uh, so I guess these are guys that are like the special. Uh, assault team or whatever, but they're posing as plumbers show up with guns drawn and they're sent by Dagenhurst to kind of like figure out what's going on and clean up this mess. Um, and uh, but basically, they they uh, report to Dagenhurst later that Spencer is dead. 
Yeah, that seems to be their only purpose in this movie. Yeah. Lori tries to take off from the house on her own, but uh, Wallace catches up with her, gets in the car, uh, shows her... She, she tried to drive off, and he screams as she's driving off, uh, I have the letters! And uh, she ends up backing up. Right. So they've, or at least he's got the letters, like you say, like, you know, leverage. Yeah. And um, uh, they're taking off. I'm not sure exactly where they're meant to be going right now, but, um, yeah, where are they supposed to be going right now? I'm not sure. Maybe just away. I can't really think. Yeah, but uh, this this is what sets up a car chase. So I guess they needed to go somewhere. Then we're not right. told for a car chase to happen. Yeah, because <laughs> every spy it, movie needs a, needs a car chase. Of course, yeah, and we've we've already had some like you know shooting and some skullduggery and some some sort of spy stuff. But um, the car chase scene actually does serve a few purposes in the story. I think one of the uh, good ones to mention is it's a, it's a challenge and a hardship for Laurie to Wall- and Wallace to overcome together. You know, like, I mean, right now he thinks, you know, in the part of the story that they're, well, he doesn't know how the story's supposed to go. He's just kind of following it through. It looks like he's supposed to hang out with her. So that's what he's doing. Um, what she's doing, at least at the beginning of the car chase, is just like keeping a hold of him in the hopes of getting the letters away from him. I'm going right. to talk about that more at the end of the tr- car chase. But anyways, part of the car chase, you know, like it's important in movies for the, I mean, because at the end, they're, I mean, they're going to get together and they're going to fall in love, which is great. But at this point, at the beginning of the car chase, they're not in love with each other. No, it, that that hasn't even started. No, yeah, the the interest hasn't really peaked. I mean, she's flirted with him, but it was more of a self preservation thing than it was an actual interest. Hundred percent. And um, but you know, a car chase. You're going to see that they afterwards they start warming up to each other, and so I like the fact you know you have the car chase. I think it's partly a mechanism of something for them to go through together. In fact, it's 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 pretty good and extensive, and I think works well. It also gives Boris, who uh, gives pursuit after them with his two bozos, um, <laughs> it's going to give him opportunity to uh, accidentally mistake. Wallace for an American super spy. Very, yeah, I think he calls him American Superman. I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yes, yes, <laughs> literally Superman. And that combined with the plumber's report to Dagenhurst of Spencer's death combines to, to motivate Dagenhurst to think that now they're dealing with someone very, very dangerous. Um, yeah, it was it was probably during it was probably during the um, cigarette radio call that uh, Spencer mentioned literally mentioned the ambassadors and the plot. So now they they know this guy is not Spencer. They know that whoever it is knows about the plot, and they're getting these frantic reports from Boris that this is this is American Superman. Yeah. <laughs> why you not? Why you not tell me? You tell me nothing about CIA super spy. 
all of this, by the time we're done with the car chase, is going to motivate them to think that what their play is, is they're going to just have to um, lure in the heroes with, with the promise of three million pounds. Which is, by the way, all they've got. It's all that's left in their slush fund, which again goes well, to they the... they had to combine. They had to combine with Sergey and Dagenhurst. They had 1.5 each, and they offered $3 million. And that was literally like what was left in their funding, which again, it's a tiny thing, but it goes back to the point that like, like I was saying before, that Dagenhurst... Dagenhurst's primary motivation seems to be that his his department is no longer needed, and so it's no longer being funded properly. And he just wants he just wants more funding. He wants his spy agency back, which is another callback to when we did a man, most wanted man, uh, where it's just you have these organizations just competing for funding, and they'll they'll do anything to to get their funding, pretty much. Uh, so that, yeah, so so now he's working with the Russians to reignite the Cold War, so he can get funding for his department. <laughs> yeah, but of course they, uh, uh, you know, we know that the or we are shown that the villains aren't planning to actually hand over the three million pounds. It's going to be a lure to to uh, get them into place so that they can take them out. Right. So I don't need to talk about the car chase a lot in terms of mechanics. I mean, it's kind of fun. It's a car chase. You know, it's not a, it's not an especially thrilling car chase, even for 1997 standards. But uh, rather just to talk about, like, what the car chase scene accomplishes in the story. But uh, I'm here to give my number three worst tradecraft. Actually, that's what I said was my number three what I was going to put forth as my number three worst, which was Boris overestimating Wallace just based on him missing one shot. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's following them in a van. He's lining up. He's about to take the shot. And then uh, Laurie suddenly realizes that Wallace is driving on the wrong side of the road because Britain. Right. And yeah. so they swerve over to the right side of the road just as they miss some oncoming traffic. And Boris, for some reason, that is all he needs uh, to decide that this is, you know, American CIA Superman. A Yankee doodle do <laughs> That's literally all it was. So yeah. I think that was a solid number three worst tradecraft, but since I need to slot something better in, I need to trade something out for my stupid thing about them like waiting like an hour yeah. to like call Spencer, you know, yeah. call him and ask him what's going on. Right. Um, so not calling Spencer is my number three. Boris overestimating, overestimating Wallace just based on that one missed shot, I'll definitely call it minus spy points. I'll call it a solid minus 20. I mean, that's kind of... Yeah. That's kind of goofy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, there's some good lines here, though, because uh, yeah. now Sergey and Dagenhurst are screaming at each other over the phone about this new information that there's an American super spy in play. Um, a really good line here, one of the best in the movie, I think, is, you know, if we cannot trust each other, I forget who gives it. I think it's Sergey. Right? Yeah. yeah they if we cannot trust each other, how can we bring Cold War back together? <laughs> that was a good line. It that is a good line. I think I could have wrote it better. I think it could have been polished. I think like, I think something like, uh, how can we have Cold War if we cannot trust each other? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's 
slightly better. It's slightly yeah. better, but it's a good one. A but good he did one. the job, and 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 it was very clever, very very clever writing. Uh, the the car chase ends with uh, them getting pulled over by the cops, and um, you know it looks like they're gonna get arrested, but. Dagenhurst again makes contact again now because he thinks that he's dealing with an American super spy and he's going to make his play to use the three million pounds as bait to get them into a position where they can take care of them. Um, Gets them off the hook with the police. And it has one of my other favorite movies, uh, lines in the movie. It's kind of subtle, but it makes... I laugh harder every time I hear it, which is where... One of the first things that, that Wallace says to Dagenhurst on the little cigarette radio phone is, may I step out of character for just one moment? And Dagenhurst just says, I wish you would. <laughs> it, trust me, if, British you, if you... Too. He, was, he was like, I'd rather wish you would. <laughs> if you haven't seen the movie, believe me, it's 50 times funnier than what I'm describing. Yeah. <laughs> it was really funny. So it's throughout this part of the film, though, back to our Wallace and Laurie thing and why the car chase, I think, is important. You know, before the car chase, he is talking about um, changing the script. You know, like, could could we change the script? Could we do it a different way? He's talking about wanting to be a good guy. And and he's, he talks about how we're all just acting, you know, like, uh, she... she asks him, you know, are you acting when you say these things about, like, wanting to change the script? Which she thinks is, like, change the script, like, uh, uh, get out of their roles that they've been assigned to in life. He's talking about getting outside of their roles that's been assigned to by the script of the theater of life. Right. And uh, he says, you know, hey, we're all just acting, aren't we, in the theater of life? And she, like, thinks that's so profound. Yeah, yeah, that was actually pretty funny. She she misconstrues it as, like, you know, romantic metaphor, and she, like, starts to maybe kind of see him in a different light. And then they have the car chase that they go through together, and they have to work together to get through it, and then they get arrested by the cops, and they have to navigate that part of it together. And then it's after this, so now, again, they've been offered the three million pounds. She's excited by that. They've got instructions to meet the villains at the embassy to get the three million pounds. And it's when they arrive at the embassy, and I'm calling this the end of the the chase scene, the car chase scene, um, where they have another talk in the car. This is just as he, Wallace, is getting out of the car to go into the embassy to do the negotiations, to hand over the letters, to get the three million pounds. And uh, he gives her some more talk about how he'd like to see their story continue. You know, why do we have to be the Bonnie and Clyde? Can't we do the getaway together? And she, right. She, Which I talking get... about changing the story, uh, and she's she's hearing it as like a like kind of like a romantic uh, court courting for her, I guess. Sure. And right. I totally get the Bonnie and Clyde reference. And I assume The Getaway, like, I don't know the movie The Getaway, do you? No. Okay. But, I mean, it's pretty clear that it's uh, meant to be a movie where the guy and the girl get away together alive with the money, as opposed to Bonnie and Clyde, where they die at the end. With the money. 
<laughs> with the <laughs> And the final uh, little bit of that, you know, you know, because she's looking at him again in a totally new light, but she's still not entirely, you know, wanting to believe that this is true. She's starting. She's starting to warm up to him. She's starting to moisten. Um, but you know, she says again, like you know, or this is her time to ask him, "Are you act? You know, or you're just acting, or are you acting?" And he just like drops everything, and he just says, "You know what? To be honest, I can't act." <laughs> the line delivery here is super good. It's really good. You can see he's not just dropped the face. Because remember, he's in a role, right? Where he's pretending to be... I guess he still thinks he's Spencer at this point. Um, In responding to her with this line about, I can't act, he's actually really bearing several layers of his soul he's dropping the face of the character that he's playing but he's also dropping the face of the pretend actor that he's trying to be right he's even kind of dropping the facade of the wallace ritchie the guy that as a kid dreamed of being an actor and then found out that he was shitty at it and had to settle for a sad dead end career at Blockbuster in Des Moines, Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> in a way like that, the it doesn't get really like hammered in by this movie, but if you're paying really close attention to the little bits. Him not being able to act. I'm going to come back to this, too. I'm going to come back to this. Him not being able to act to do the thing that he always wanted to do is like his core protagonist flaw, thing that he needs to overcome in order to achieve the... I forget what the word is. Uh, Moira, can you help us out with this? In a dramatic structure... The protagonist's necessary change of internal perspective required for them to advance from Act 2 to Act 3 is called the Epiphany. Uh, yeah, that's the one. That's the thing, that's the thing that is the, the word for when the hero has uh, surpassed themselves by overcoming their flaw. Anyways, um, I love the way Bill Murray gave this line. Bill Murray is... Um, Bill Murray, to me, is an actor that, especially up until this point, because remember, we haven't yet seen the movies where we get a glimpse of Bill Murray's actual potential dramatic acting chops. Yeah, we don't really get much from him. He's been a goofball yeah. throughout his entire career up until now. Um, and also, he's like he's always mugging for the camera. He's always mugging for the camera. All of Bill Murray's, like, lines, even his best lines, they're lines. Like, they're quotable lines. And when he delivers them, he delivers them in a way that, like, he knows that they're quotable lines. I knew I should have taken that left coin of Albuquerque. Right. <laughs> he's he's kind of even when like even when Bill Murray isn't talking to the audience, he's very like 
aware that the camera is there in a kind of a funny way. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, like, absolutely. Like there's like he's almost constantly winking at the audience in all of his roles. Yeah. Especially all of his roles up until now. It's later after this movie that we get things like Lost in Translation and like his work that he does with Wes Anderson right. and stuff. Even though he still does some comedy. I mean, he still ends up being like the voice of Garfield <laughs> and and doing some like, you know, funny stuff like that. Um, but this little line here, like, I can't act, the way he gives it is just like, Perfect, 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 and and I, I think it was just a small hint, and I wonder, and I, I'll never get the answer to this, but I'll always wonder, every time I watch this scene, whether or not this was an acting decision that Bill Murray made himself to deliver the line in the way he does, or whether or not it was something the director had to, like, tease out of him and keep saying, like, no, Bill, you can't do this one with a wink at the audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you there's so, really so, so many ways you could deliver this line. You yeah. know what? You know what? To be honest, I can't act. Right. There's a lot of ways you could do it, like, smooth. You could do it, like, uh, uh, I, I think this is one, like, uh, I said before, like, I think Chevy Chase, I think, might have been, to me, funnier in this movie than Bill Murray. This is one that I don't think Chevy Chase could have landed anywhere. No, definitely not. He would, have, he would have been incapable of giving this line yeah. this well. Yeah. So yeah, sorry, I had, to, I, had to, I had to spend some time with that one. No problem. I, th- I think you had a really good point. That was a really good line. You know. Um, Alright. But yeah. we, got a, we got some more movie we got to talk about, right? Yeah, we got quite a bit. Alright, so uh, Wallace walks in to make the trade-off for the money. but uh, to, the, we, to the embassy. To the embassy, right? Uh, and we haven't actually talked about the brother at all, mainly because the brother doesn't really have much impact on the story other than, like, maybe some comedy. And um, But how he gets involved is when Boris picks, and, and I guess his, like, uh, his, uh, his security or his, 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 his uh, goons or whatever... You know, they pick up Wallace and um, basically this story of this. Well, we didn't bring this up earlier. That's right. The, okay. So the real Spencer, when he got the phone call from the theater of life, you know, the, the, you know how Wallace and the real Spencer kind of swapped and received each other's phone calls that were meant for them. He actually, uh, the real Wallace got involved in the theater of life and shot one of the actors. Sorry, you Sorry. meant the real Spencer. The real Spencer. The real Spencer. Uh, got involved in a theater of life and goes over and shoots one of the actors. I'm giving minus massive spy points for the theater people and the police not thinking to ring up the client immediately after the shooting. Like, the shooting that you talked about, right? Right. That was that was like a couple hours ago in, in the timeline of the movie at this point. Right. It should have been the first thing they did, right? What, call the brother? Yeah. Like, well, they might not have had his phone number. He might have just, like, paid for it. And then, well, I mean, they should have. Yeah, they probably would have had his phone number. I would think so. Yeah. No, you're right. That, that's pretty That's pretty dumb. Why didn't they just call him ahead of time? I realize now that that actually creates a theme in all of all, almost all of my bad tradecraft in this movie. It's just basically people 
not placing calls when they should right by common logic right. instead waiting to place those calls when it is uh suitable to the comedy of the movie yeah anyways number two worst they should have called the person as soon as someone showed up and killed one of their actors I think the first person they should have called is the person that paid for yeah. the, the the experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm also, like, I don't know. Am I going to give spy points? I'm on the fence on this. For when they grab, when Boris and his goons grab Wallace out of the lobby, mm-hmm. they they inject him in the arm. Hey, bro, you just with your yeah. pen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great line. Um. And then they, they slap some leg straps on, on either side of him. So that Let's kind of explain this a little bit. Because basically the one comes up to his side, stabs him with the pen, which is a sedative. And as the sedative's kind of kicking in, two men stand next to him and then strap, like, the one man on his right straps his left leg to Wallace's right leg, and the man on his left straps his right leg to Wallace's left leg. So as the sedative's kicking in, they're able to hold him up and they kind of like walk him through the lobby. They can, trunk, they can trunk walk him. Yeah. So he kind of, it looks awkward. Like it's definitely not subtle. It's really subtle. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it was kind of, it's kind of a cute idea though. Like how they handled with the fact that they're in a public place and this guy's about to pass out so they can make it look like they're kind of drunk carrying him. So I, th- I think that was kind of cute. Um, yeah. Uh, but I'm I'm gonna give this my number one best trade pack. Or it just the pens in general. I like I like how the pens just look like pens and they inject because uh like like we've said over and over, it was it was really tough to try and find. That's uh, pretty cool. No, pens are cool, and we get we get a good one too when like uh later in the movie, like the same guy. I guess he's yeah. like the pen injector guy. He like. They're they're supposed to they give him a truth serum again with a pen injector and then later and each pen has its own thing in it right right yeah 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 and then they're supposed to give him the antidote and he like stabs him with the the antidote and then he says oh wait no that was actually my pen yeah like it was a real pen so he had to go and grab the pen that had the (laughs) antidote that was that was some good comedy but you know I thought it's bad tradecraft it's bad or it's at least negative spy points. Don't keep your pen with your set of fake spy tool injector pens. (laughs) Don't mix them up. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I just thought it was kind of You're you're going number one best tradecraft on that one. Dude, I'm seriously, I was seriously on the fence if I even wanted to give spy points. It, it's a little goofy. It's a little goofy. I guess it would work. super goofy. It would work. It would work so like much. out on a on a street or something. Yeah. If you're like trying to, uh, you know, pull this play out with like people that are observing you from like a block away, but like people in the same room, this is not gonna fly. No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, but I mean, like they are in a hotel lobby, right? Aren't they? Aren't they at like a like a hotel? Yeah, they're at like the Grand Plaza Hotel or something. A hotel or an embassy? I'm not sure. I think it's it. It might supposed. It might. It doesn't matter. It's a. It's a. It's a grand place. Yeah, I mean, so they could have been like helping a drunk friend up the elevator or whatever. But I, I'm just giving. I mean, like we were scraping so much for tradecraft in this movie. 
That's why I gave it my number one because the way that they quickly came in to his side, like snuck up on him, shot him with the pen, and then both like like instinctively with great like synchronization, like strapped their legs to him so that they could like drunk walk him to the elevator to get him into a room. So I that's why that's why I think it was just so well orchestrated. Um, and like the sneak up was like done and just like the cool gadget pen of like a syringe. So I, we didn't have a lot to work with. So that, that's why it's getting my number one. All right. Yeah. Uh, we get him up into the hotel room. Uh, basically all of the villains show up here. I think, uh, Embleton, Dagenhurst, Dagenhurst Flunky, Dagenhurst's two plumbers show up here. Yeah. We've got Boris and his two goons. Yeah. Uh, we've even got Sergei showing up. Yeah. Um, I love this line when uh, you know the knock at the door and who is it? Oh, it's the it's the plumbers. And like one of his goons just immediately like bristles and he's like, "Those sons of bitches blew up my Nikita in '79." Boris is like, "Forget about your dog. <laughs> he's in better place." <laughs> Yeah, and then, uh, you know, I think Boris wanted to kill Wallace, and he was going to get messy, and the goons were like, this is a really good, like, Boris, please not like Helsinki. It's fun for you, but we have to clean up after. He's like, they're both, they're both like, Boris, Boris, please, please. (laughs) Come on, man. It's fun for you. That was was cute. I like them. They are really funny, the two goons. Yeah. They They don't get a whole lot of screen time, but... Uh, they're, they're, they're pretty funny. Yeah. By the way, did, yeah, the, uh, yeah, the, I like the way they, they come, they, they come across as real working stiffs. Yeah. You know, like nine to fivers. Yeah. Yeah. That are just kind of always like, you know, they don't express this in the movie, but they kind of express it just in their, uh, behavior that they're kind of like, uh, we got to do this now. We got to do this now. But they're, 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 they seem like kind of tired. They don't seem excited to be spies. No, no, yeah, yeah. They're not like crisp, like young, super sharp professionals like Bachman's team in, in, uh, in uh, A Most Wanted Man. Yeah. They're, right. they're just, they're just guys that are just drawing a check. Well, all they do, they're just the muscle for the most part. They're, they're kind of just good, like we've been calling them. They're just goons, you know. Yeah, so, I know, but but some kind of goons you have in movies, they're like, you know, the guys that look like they enjoy uh, beating people up. These yeah, guys yeah. don't look like they enjoy any part no. of their job. No, no, they're like there to like clock in and clock out. They're definitely there to clock in and clock out. Yeah, and they they do it in a in a just a nice kind of frumpy comedic way that I that really appeals to me. I like these guys. Yeah, they're pretty fun. They're my favorite characters in the movie. You know, one of my favorite scenes dealing with the goons actually is like uh, when they had to pretty much babysit uh, a tied up Wallace and Lori uh, when Boris and everybody leave. You know, main, the main villains go to the dining hall to get ready for the big explosion. And then, you know, Boris is out doing, I think he had to go get the doctor or something. And so they're just sitting there waiting and to bide their time, they. You know, it's, it's, you know, Todd, you're right. They obviously just want to show up to clock in and clock out. Because, like, 
while they're waiting, they obviously have a set of kerplunk that I guess they bring with them everywhere to kill time. <laughs> yeah. So they're just sitting there playing kerplunk while they're waiting for everybody What's to What's kerplunk? What's kerplunk? I looked this up. It's not <laughs> literally kerplunk. It's something like it, but describe what we're looking at here. Yeah, it's like a kind of plastic tube, and at the top of the tube, uh, there's uh, like kind of like a holes on the side, and you put all these sticks in so the that you could put marbles on top of the sticks and you put a lot of sticks and i guess the game is whoever can pull the most sticks out without dropping all the marbles i guess and whoever pulls the last stick out i guess loses or i'm not exactly sure how it works but this is definitely like like a fun hasbro like family game like yeah. from the 90s this is uh this is not this is not what like hardened killers play. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> this is something that that like uh, guys are just trying to kill their time. You know, like if you're at work and you have some downtime, you just kind of like this, goof all this around. Is a fan- this is a kid's family. This is like a family night game. Like yeah. kids, hey, you know, oh, you want to play video games? Well, no, you can't because we're gonna have some family time. We're gonna play Kerplunk. Yeah. <laughs> like there's like virtually no actual like strategy to the game. Right. It's just a garbage family game. Yeah. But, but, they, but they, I, I just thought it was one of my favorite scenes. It was kind of cute. Uh, but they, like but, you know, but, dude, they, but dude they play it they're playing it with a chess clock. Yeah, oh no, that was even the best part. That was the best part. Yeah. No, not only do they carry this game around with them for their downtime at the job, but they have like a chess clock to, to force them to like, to make it extra competitive. Like they're playing tournament Kerplunk or something. They're playing one of the stupidest games ever invented on the planet as if like, it's a really serious game. It's, yeah, it's hilarious. Like, I tabs on who wins and loses back and forth. Or you something. ever played connect four, Dave? Absolutely. Oh really? Are you? Would you consider yourself a Connect Four master? I don't know about a master, but I'm okay. I will I tell you. I will tell you. I will tell you this. I've said this before. I'll say it again. There are levels of the game of Connect Four that only people who have done time will ever fucking truly understand. When I was in juvenile hall for like five days. I sat down, like, some guys were playing Connect Four. I was like, I'm bored. I'll go join. I got in there, and I just, like, immediately, like, just destroyed. Just destroyed. And then somebody noticed that I was kicking ass at Connect Four and came over and started playing against me, and he just fucking started whooping my ass at the game. Oh, wow. And then I had to, like up my shit and start rethinking like how the game was played and start coming up with counter strategies against him and like word started getting around that like oh like some serious connect four players (laughs) are at the table and got down to like i don't know five of us that were like just the top of the top going at it and like we really really stretched i mean it was only five days in juvie but um we got we got heavily into it, and if we had had a chess clock available to us, 
we would have been using it. <laughs> true story. True, true Todd story there. Yeah. It's also fun, like, uh, and it's kind of like a callback to a couple of movies we've seen before, and and we might see again. Let's keep an eye out for this when you're when you're watching a hostage, and that's your job. Um, you pull out a game to play to pass the time. Yeah. <laughs> in, uh, in A Man Who Knew Too Much, 1956 version, Coke Bottle Glasses Lady was playing chess with Hank while, she, right. while she was watching him. Yep, yep, yep. And in... Uh, That's a another most, callback to A Man Who Knew Too Much. In A Most Wanted Man, Annabelle's playing chess with Karpov. All right. Well, he's in hiding. Wow. So these two guys should be playing chess. <laughs> the yeah, goons should be playing, playing chess. Clock with a chess clock. Right. Wow. I, I totally forgot about that. Yeah. Levels but, of the game. But yeah, but this, uh, uh, but you know, now we have a Wallace and a Laurie that are tied up. And so uh, we got to kind of get him out of this situation. Right. Uh, because at so some he, point they did bring Laurie in off the street. Right. And so he kind of clutches his way out in uh, the typical fashion that the movie set up, where he's just kind of, like, obliviously, like, survived. A real live nephew of my uncle Sam, born on the 4th of July. Um, he kind of knocks them out with his chair. You know, there's like a whole thing, but, like, he, he gets out of it. Um, and, uh, and basically, what, oh, isn't this where, like, Lori, uh, they, they start talking to get away and they get through the window and uh, like Wallace makes a point about the money because he's still in character and she's trying to have a moment with him. She mistakes his interest in the money with uh, thinking that he's not interested in her romantically and leaves type of thing. Right. He's only asking like, what about the money? Because like, I thought the money was like part of the the story. We got to get to the next stage. Of the... to do. We got to get to the next step, right? Where, where's the money? You know? Yeah, he's still trying to uh, basically like follow the script, and she mistakes that for thinking that he's really just in it for the money, and that all that stuff before that he was saying to her doesn't mean anything, and so she takes off. Yeah. Got to have a little dramatic tension in the in the in the love interest plot here. Yeah, it's small, but it's there. Yeah, um, but he goes out the window. You know, after she gets out, he goes out himself to try and chase after. Her. And he's stuck out there. There's like a moment with the brother, uh, which is ending quickly. And then uh, the two goons spot him outside and start shooting at him from the sidewalk. And uh, oh, right, they try to get him off. They they try to get him out from grabbing him from a window, but that fails. So yeah, they go down to the street and yeah. start taking shots at him. And here's my number three best tradecraft. Uh, even though it's a small thing, I don't think it works well in real life, but it, it I just I thought it was kind of clever. Um, like, uh, they're standing next to each other, and one of the guys, like, opens up a newspaper as if he's reading it, so his friend can, can shoot through the newspaper, and yeah. so that people on the street don't get freaked out by uh, seeing someone shooting at someone yeah. on a busy London street. Yeah. <laughs> it's tightly executed. I'm not sure it's entirely practical in real life, but uh hey, number 3 best. But despite being a, you know, some kind of attempt at taking him out, 
you know, off of the ledge. They fail, and he makes his way uh, back into a window, and it's make it, he he makes good his escape at least at this part, and gets back into the hotel. Yeah, he just kind of gives the slip away, and he ends up ducking into a dressing room. Uh, so at this treaty signing event, there's going to be like cultural demonstrations of and performances. So there's kind of like a dressing room area where a bunch of performers are, and he kind of ducks into it. Uh, and puts on, uh, I guess, uh, one of those big fluffy Russian hats. Because at this point, he's being pursued by Boris. Yeah, Boris spotted him, and uh, he, ch- they, you know, so there's kind of a the, the chase is on a little bit, and so he ducks into the dressing room and puts on the hat to kind of blend in with all these performers. Probably like, I don't know, eighty people in this dressing room getting ready to perform. And I'm actually going to mark this my number two best tradecraft. Especially coming from Wallace, who's like, unbeknownst to him, he's in a real spy chase. And what he does is he ducks into the dressing room and finds some uh, clothing really, really quickly. Holds like a, he's wearing like a fur Russian hat, holding like a random bagpipe. Sits one down of those, on one of those, one of those big fucking things. Yeah, the giant ones. Like, like when you think like Russian furry hat from like back in the day like you, you know what you yeah know what we're not talking, talking about like a little cap you're talking about like one of those like like almost like mongolian kind of like right. big huge ring of fur right. around the crown of your head so he puts one of those on sits in front of one of those lighted mirrors and just grabs some bagpipes and is sitting there watching boris from the mirror uh and blends in with the crowd completely and boris just unbeknownst to him has He's he's given he's he's given the what the shake, uh, yep yep that's the yeah, yeah he's given the shake on Boris and uh, I guess quote unquote gets away from from the chase so I'm I'm putting that as my number two best trade craft and uh, but after after this uh, I guess there's like a PA right walking around in charge of the actors and he starts yelling at him like hey Nikolai which I, I think I I brought up earlier like what what the hell happened to Nikolai. You know, uh, why, like, I don't think I don't think that was really like discussed, but uh, he's like, yo, you got to get up. You got to get and perform, uh, hey, hey, you know, get up, get up. You know, it's time to go. And so Bill Murray is kind of forced into the situation where he has to act and perform. Remember, like Wallace wanted to act as a kid. Right. Right. We, we established that it's right. not it's not something the movie like puts right in your face, but it is there. Right. And he suffered a traumatic incident of stage fright. Like, the thing that keyed me in on this is, like, remember, like, uh, um, the PA that you just mentioned. He says, like, you know, I mean, because now he's in costume. He got in costume just to shake Boris. But now this is having some unintended consequences where the PA mistakes him as an actor and says, like, it's time to go. It's time to go. you got to get up on stage. And he specifically says, like, wait a second. Like, my brother said I wouldn't have to. I, he said, I, like, because when the brother was selling him on this whole theater of life thing in the first place, uh-huh. he was hesitant because he didn't want to have to perform in front of people. But his brother said, like, no, 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 it's not like that. It's right. not like that. It's a totally different thing. But now it's turning into this the thing that is, like, Wallace's childhood trauma mm-hmm. and, like, the core of his character. So... He's, I mean, 
it pro I'm guessing it was probably better done in the book, but at least there's elements of it here that are still there if you look for them. And the real protagonist's journey in this, like his flaw is that he's not confident in himself enough to do what he dreams of doing in front of other people. W right. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, he's like kind of thrown into the deep end. You know, like so here it is again, like his, um, the thing that he actually needs to do in order to like solve this movie and get to his exogenesis or whatever the fuck it is, is to uh, ultimately to perform on stage in front of people. Yeah. The thing that like derailed his life in the first place is now, but now he's, he's kind of like, I don't know, like the whole theater of life experience that he's had up until now has kind of like charged him up a little bit. Yeah. It's I mean, been fun for him. And if you notice throughout the movie, his, his uh, dialogue gets better. He starts right. like, coming into the character slowly, but surely. Like at he he at the in the initial scenes, like I think like one of his early scenes or early parts that he thinks is a scene is where he gets mugged. Yeah, you know, and he's really hesitant, and he he keeps like stopping and like making he apologies. Does, like, multiple like, takes. Right. Yeah. yeah he, he they're stops actual and says, real okay, No, yeah. that was bad. That was bad. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Let me try it again. And yeah. then he'll try it a different way or whatever. But there's less and less of that as he goes along. Like, he's really starting to, like, uh, find his stride as an actor. He's becoming the actor that he was always internally meant to be along this journey through the movie. I am not saying this is a deep movie. But if you're looking for depth, this is where it is. This... Yeah. Yeah, this is really his journey. Yeah. And then the actual finale involves him having to face the thing that he didn't ever want to do in his life. But at this point, he's gotten whipped up and he's kind of having fun with it. Yeah. And so, <laughs> like, summons up the, like, he doesn't have, like, a moment where he, like, stops and says, like, okay, Wallace, this is the time. This is the time. He just, like, kind of says, like, oh, it's, my brother said I didn't have to do this but the guy says no you got to do it and he's like all right well and he goes out there and he performs terrifically the crowd loves him the crowd yeah. loves him yeah and the they whole thing there was actually a cute thing where he takes the russian doll from in front of the ambassadors which is the bomb you know because he didn't have a russian doll and uh everyone else has got like a doll a Every, all, the other, all the other dancers it's a dance scene that he's involved in right yeah, some like traditional Russian dance performance of like right. and of or something. And at some point, like all the dancers like bring out a doll, and he doesn't have one. Right. So he takes he, the one that's in front of the, the plant was. Yeah. So again, you said like so he he grabs a a doll. He grabs the only free doll that he sees, which happens to be the one that has the bomb in it that was placed right. on the table in front of the ambassadors. He just right. says like. Oh, can I just borrow this? Which, of course, freaks the villains out. Yeah, they're watching him play with the bomb, and he's, like, juggling it around, throwing it all over the place. I think he does a football throw at one time. That was pretty funny. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so the pretty much uh, the villains are on edge at this point because 
the clock is ticking. We're almost getting there. And uh, yeah, uh, in the dance. And I think, what was it? Boris finally catches up and is going to take a shot at him with like a syringe. Like yeah, a he's gonna, he's gonna, uh, yeah, he's gonna shoot him with a dart with a little hand crossbow, which uh, you know is yeah. nice spy points because it's something that won't make noise. Yeah, right, right, right. And um, and uh, well, during the dance, Bill Murray is like twisting the top of the doll, which is how you arm or disarm the bomb. And um, because the clock's ticking and it's getting so close, as he's twisting. You know, uh, I think, what is it? Lori spots Boris and steps up and knocks him over. And then the dart hits the Russian doll. And I think the clock stops, of course, is every movie at like one second. Two uh, seconds in this case. Two, uh, two seconds. So I guess he I wasn't, I, I, I wasn't clear, and I don't think I'll ever be clear on whether or not we're meant to think that the dart stopped the bomb. No, the, the, you had to twist the top to arm it. Okay, so so he just accidentally, like, by twisting it back and forth, like, he accidentally, like, stopped it at two seconds. But before he could, before maybe he could accidentally twist it again. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, when yeah. it's important that <laughs> Boris takes a shot at him, but Laurie bumps into Boris so that the dart hits the doll instead of the... Uh, instead of him, which of course, like all the villains, again misinterpret as being like, "Oh my God, this guy's amazing." I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. Boris called him a god. He he walks, <laughs> stands right next to Lori, just dumbfounded, and goes, "The man is a god." <laughs> <laughs> which wait, did we even mention that Bo- who Bo- who plays Boris? Go for it, baby. No, no, uh, I forgot his name. Um, Alfred Molina. Alfred Molina, which Broke is another callback. The whip. Which is another callback to our first five uh, podcasts. He was he was the sorcerer in the company. R.B. Charini, baby. Yeah, I, I I I loved how many callbacks we got in this podcast. Because um, this is this is our wrap up. We're gonna do like a five episode. Well, I guess it turned into six episodes, but we have this block, and. We had several callbacks to all of our movies. I love I think, that too. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> I thought I thought it was cute. Yeah, but moving on. Uh, so the guess... day is saved. The day is saved. Basically, right. the bomb is uh, not going to kill a bunch of ambassadors, and it was all done through accidentary and klutzery. But again, if you accept the coincidences, it all made sense, and. Just going back one more time, I like the fact that in the end, what our hero needed to do was just to overcome his stage fright. And that's how he won the day. That's nice. That's nice. I think it's cute. Very well written. Very well written. So the villains want out of here, and they give them the two cases of cash. Yeah. Now, I'm going to be a pedant here. I went ahead. I looked it up. It's Way wrong. <laughs> uh, the two cases that they have, they're big ones. You know, they're 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 not like suitcase size, but they're no. big, chunky, like blocks of leather and stuff with handles on them. But uh, three million pounds. I did some math. Go ahead and take a guess. Why don't we play a little game with this, Dave? 
how much do you think three million pounds? Now, keep in mind the the British note, and they don't use the euro. Even if even if this was like modern day, remember the Brits never adopted the euro and still used the pound. The highest pound note that they have is the fifty. We have a hundred. In they don't the, even have a hundred. No, no, no. They don't have a hundred. They have a fifty. Jeez. <laughs> All right. Three million pounds in fifty pound notes. How much do you think that would weigh? Oh, uh, well, you'd have to cut that. So, you would need one point five million bills. No, you need in each case. Yeah, yeah. One hundred fifty thousand bills. One hundred fifty thousand bills. Sure. Hmm. How much would a stack weigh? Well, one of those stacks is probably what, like a pound or half a pound or something like that. Like, you know, you get those, like, bank-wrapped stacks of, like, what, uh, $10,000 or something? Man, so, just take just, just take a guess, because you're not going to be close. I don't know, 50 pounds? For each case? Yeah, probably for each case. Or maybe 200, both. 252. No! Yep. Wow. Three, three million pounds in 50-pound notes, unless I fucked up my math, would be uh, 504 pounds. In, in weight and take wow. up a lot more volume than what we're looking at here. This is one of the reasons, that, by the way, this is one of the reasons that the U.S. dollar is uh, the most like uh, used currency in the black market and in criminal activities like around the world. Really? Yeah, it's like for value for value, it's the lightest. Oh, I didn't know that. Anyways, I had fun with that. Sometimes I just have to look things up like that for some yeah, reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wallace is really excited. He thinks like, oh, cool, it's the end of the story. I got the money. Well, he yeah. still doesn't, he doesn't have the girl yet, but he's going to resolve that. He thinks that it's fake money. We're gonna, yeah. No, 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 don't, don't, don't blow that yet. Oh, <laughs> but uh, he puts the, he puts the bomb, he puts the doll which has the bomb in it, into it in one of the cases because he, he's like, you know, hey, don't tell anyone, but I want to keep this as a souvenir. He's, like, really excited. You know, he's jazzed. Yeah. He feels like this is the end of his story. Yeah. Um, the villains, for some reason, like, you know, when he's distracted by, by something, I think he, at this point maybe it's uh, his brother coming up to him. Uh, while he's distracted, they grab one of the cases of cash and completely unnecessarily make their escape by stealing a helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, <coughs> I, I don't, I guess now that we've talked it through and we talked about, like, their, their sad budget situation, like, maybe they, they're trying to, like, cut their losses and still have a million well, and a half he pounds. Says, uh, he says uh, maybe we should go for half or something like that. He makes a comment. Like, sure. Let's, 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 uh, just cut, let's just cut our losses and, and try and go for half, and then he, he sneaks one of the cases. Escaping by helicopter seems totally unnecessary at this point. Yeah, there seems like a lot of different ways that you could escape from this hotel with this uh, bag of cash, yeah. taxi, you know, walking, yeah. fucking catch a bus, whatever. Yeah. I don't, I don't know why yeah. you need to like, except for the the natural impulse of all villains 
especially in the 80s and still like lasting <clears throat> into the 90s to always like uh, get to a high place when the end of the movie is coming near. It's yeah. just like it's 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 instinctive in them, you know, like climb stairs, get somewhere high, get to a tall cliff, get to the top of the building. Uh, they just naturally gravitate toward that. But they they take off in a helicopter. You know? It wasn't even their own helicopter. They like stole the helicopter. Right. Right. And then they blow themselves up. Now you can talk about funny money. Just well, I didn't get to bring up the fastest gun. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, at at some point, uh, we presume Boris, after seeing, like, he goes, this man is a god. I guess he decided he's going to retire and just open up a real butcher shop for himself and go into business in retirement because he's he's just not good enough. You know, after seeing such a highly skilled agent, he, he's never, he's going to, he's going to hang up his uh, spy hat or something. And so, as a gift, he gives Wallace this little, I guess, pistol that's, like, engraved that was, like, a gift from, like, his superior or something. KGB, or, I think he yeah, KGB. specifies KGB here. Yeah, and he, and he, yeah, he goes, hey, first is gone in the East. Huh? Anyway, I laughed out loud at that. Just, yeah, just the way he said it, too. Because he, he was super serious the whole movie, and now he's just like, ah, first it's gone in the East. Huh? Yeah. And he gives it to him as a gift. So I just had to say that because uh, uh, like I, I laughed out loud at that. Was- yeah, his final scene in the movie is, uh, you know, he comes up, uh, I think, uh, he, he he comes up behind Wallace. He's got yeah. the drop on him. Yeah. Wallace turns around and it looks like it's Coyton's. Yeah. You know, he could just squeeze the trigger and, and kill Wallace right here. But instead, he like grabs him kisses him fiercely on both cheeks and if you pay close attention he like looks him in the eye and he also like cocks his head to the side like a little to make sure like to make sure you are looking in my eyes yeah. <laughs> before he tells him this you know yeah. before, before he tells him you 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 are the fastest gun in the east you are the greatest I'm retiring yeah. I can't I can't compete against this shit oh yeah <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, uh, so after that, I think he goes out with, uh, Lori. Wallace like, goes out with Lori, right? Yeah. Wallace goes out with Lori and he opens the case and he sees his doll is missing. So he, he, he realizes he's only got one case and that they took the one with the doll and he's really upset. And, uh, I had mentioned like fake money or whatever. Wallace seems to think this is like fake money because it's all part of the theater of life, but it's actual British pounds. So there's like a little romance scene. Well, he doesn't know, but that's a joke. He yeah. like he's he doesn't know what uh, British money looks like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he looks he looks at you know all these British pounds and he's just like, oh, this is just funny money. And he's sad that he lost his doll. And yes. Laurie mistakes these sentiments for a the idea that he doesn't care about money because. Right. You know, she's looking at a million and a half pounds. Yeah. <laughs> but he's he's just saying like, oh, this is just this is just nothing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like that to her, she mistakes that as thinking that you know he doesn't care about money because remember yeah, what that was, was the statement. Like, he was upset the doll was missing, and and he's like, she's like, yeah, but you got the money, and he's like, yeah, but it's all pretend, it's all fake. The doll was beautiful. 
You know, right. like, like, like the most ridiculous statement. The like, doll, no, the doll was real. Yeah, right, right. Who's and the then, doll? Right, right. And then, and then she offers. No, no, no. She's the doll. Oh, oh, that's that's clever. what that's what she's hearing. Right, right, right. Because remember, like I, you know, I know we don't we don't use that terminology anymore. But you know, for a long time, like the the, you know, the lady love in a in a movie, you know, that's the doll. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's clever. I mean, she she thought about the Russian doll, but because that's why she offers the kiss at the end as a as like, well, this is something real. You know what I mean? You know, because she sees that he valued. The doll as something beautiful uh but i didn't even think about that that's clever writing he's a whole man now or he's grown because he got forced into his flaw right yeah i like that yeah yeah and then he cares about sentimental things yeah that he cares about that he cares about beauty and yeah he sees things valuable that are, you know, like unique, the one of a kind, you know, like the girl. Experiences, the experiences. Yeah. He values an experience more than he uh, values money. Right. And that's enough for her. And she gives him a big kiss and back and forth timing. That's uh, when the villains happen to be blowing themselves up. So you get one of those funny things where, like, you know, two people kiss and there just happens to be an explosion <laughs> going off in the background. And they say, like, wow. Is that good for you? <laughs> so we're done. We're done with the plot. The villains are dead. Boris is retired. Uh, Wallace doesn't know it yet, but I guess at some point Laurie's gonna clue him in on the fact that they—it's not funny money, yeah, and they real. have a and bunch of cash to go on vacation. Yeah, to some to, Caribbean to, island or something. Yeah, some, and, some sort of tropic, you know, uh, resort type of place. Um, yeah. But uh, we get another fun blunder. They're just sitting on the beach and this uh, waiter shows up with like some tropical cocktails and coconuts, you know, instead of like a glass. They got the coconuts with these fancy straws and flowers. And uh, uh, and. Uh, he starts getting allergic to the guy's old spice is the common joke. The running gag has been throughout the movie and kind of blunders his way into knocking this guy out. And two gentlemen with, with sunglasses and suits on walk up to him and start clapping and uh, tell her. And, and so we discover that that waiter was a plant and the, had the cocktails poisoned. And I was like, what, what kind of poison was it? Uh, Amazonian frog poison. Oh yeah. Which which yeah. apparently only one agent in one thousand detects the frog poison. Let alone being able to avoid it. So uh, this is like a final test. This is a test for them where uh, this is the CIA, right? Who haven't been involved in this movie. Right. But apparently they caught wind of his escapades. Uh, that were part of the movie, and they're interested in recruiting him, but they want to put him through a final test, yeah, which is to try to kill him with uh, Amazonian frog poison, which yep. only one agent in a thousand ever detects. Right. What's what's wrong with this, Dave? What's wrong well, with this scenario? 
What are they going to kill? How many people have they killed poisoning them trying to get the one out of a thousand? You know? I, 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 I'm, I'm putting this down as my worst trade crap, but I think, I, think you, 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 I think we both agree on this. This is sheer... This is sheer inanity. This is also, like... They also say that they usually observe each of their prospects for 12 to 18 months. Yeah. You were talking about the... You flagged... I, I don't know where you placed Lefemme it, but Kita. you didn't like the brick wall in La yeah, after investing all these resources into training an agent and then possibly throwing it away on a roll of the dice. These guys are just fucking nuts. Yeah. They're <laughs> gonna... Are you telling me their usual... <clears throat> their usual operation operating behavior is to observe each candidate for 12 to 18 months, and then, and then, take a one in a thousand chance that that person is going to survive? What? Wait, what's... Jesus. Okay, wow. No, that's out of control. Wait, holy shit. Holy shit. Oh, fuck. I think they broke our buzzer. Oh, wait. <laughs> Mara? What's going on with that? The center's tradecraft analysis algorithm has been overloaded. Estimated time to restore function is not yet known. Okay, so, uh, yeah, dear, could you, like, uh, see if you could just get that repaired for our next series? I, I guess we don't need it anymore for, for this one. Actually, we're gonna, we're gonna need it again. We're gonna need it again for, a, in a few minutes, uh, for the wrap-up. Do you think you could have it fixed by then? Unlikely that the system can be repaired that quickly. I have downloaded an alternative sound effect that can be stripped into the episode in post-production. Okay, thanks. That'll be great. Uh, yeah, Dave. That is not that. That's not worst tradecraft of this movie. That is the worst tradecraft of the podcast so far. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we get a, we get a good line out of this scene too. Hit me. Uh, yeah, they, they basically recruit him to be an assassin. And he's he's thinking that they're from Hollywood trying to get him to be an actor. Uh, they called him a superstar, so he, he mistakes the superstar comment as they're from Hollywood. So he's talking about, man, I'll, I'll do six hits a week. And they're like, six? He's like, no, five. And I want to do one for free. I want to do kids or old people at least once a week. You know, and... and it, in their mind, he's like offering to kill kids and old people, but in his mind, he's trying to do some charity work as like a celebrity or something. And and everything ends with like a cute scene of them and uh, credits roll, and we have finished The Man Who Knew Too Little. All right, so David, do you think uh, we're ready to come in from the cold now? Absolutely, let's do it. Agents, please report for debriefing on this operation. Groundhog Day is like a sincerely like five star super rewatchable film of all eternity. Yep. This is kind of a throwaway, but it's a throwaway that I that I like. Um I think I could I, I think the rewatchability is there. Uh I I appreciate that the script survives close scrutiny, and there's slight jokes in here that I think just kind of keep somehow keep getting funnier 
over time, over over watches. Uh, I don't know what what else am I gonna say? Solid three. Yeah. Solid three stars for me. I I'm I'm pretty much also gonna give it a three. I mean, like Todd said, Bill Murray doing Bill Murray and stuff. Uh, the story's really cute. Um, I, I like how tight you know the story is as well. Um, it's not like super laugh out loud funny. It's kind of one of those movies that like if they were on TV you'd watch, but I'm not gonna go out of my way to watch it. You know, but it's definitely a movie you should see like at least maybe once because it's just kind of a fun movie, like especially if you're really into Bill Murray. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm gonna give it a solid three too. It's up against some weird, like, you know, like a funny thing, something I feel like we got to mention is like 1997 is, I think, a, like a book was written about 1997 recently and the movies that came out uh, in this year and and how great a year for movies it was. This movie, like, it's kind of a bit of a throwback like it feels like a leftover of the 80s really like it it's not it's not really standing up in its own zone uh when in 1997 you know like if you had a choice of like what movie am i gonna go to see like you could have gone and seen la confidential you could have gone and seen the fifth element men in black jackie fucking brown wow uh, you know, as far as like you know, cool action movies, Con Air. Oh, what? Yeah. Wow, that is quite the list. Alien Resurrection. This is also when Austin Powers comes out. So let's note that, like, if you want to, like, let's say you're just looking at it from a movie studio perspective, you want to put out a, a spy movie farce. If you're putting this movie out. The man who knew too little. You obviously don't know that someone else is working on Austin Powers' right. uh, International yeah. Man of Mystery, right? <laughs> because because that blows this out of the water, yeah. According to certain metrics, like when you do the Google of it and it shows like all the movies, you know what? The man who knew too little doesn't even show up on a list of like fifty movies. It's it's like in the grand scheme of things it's weirdly forgettable it's like it's a i still stand by my three stars but this is like a three star movie that is out of time it's it's too little too late this is a this is a three star movie in 1987 it's kind of a nothing by 1997 because things are really heating up you know There's a lot of people doing really fucking great things. Like, anyways, I wanted to say that. Yeah. I also got to say real quick, I really love Consuela. Oh, my God. That was so, so adorable. Isn't she quietly hilarious? Yeah. Her sad little face. Yeah. She's, remember we talked about, like, the goons are just, like, you know, nine to fivers that are just, uh, cashing their checks Mm -hmm. she is definitely a nine to fiver yeah and it's like all the scenes with her it's always stuff that are out of the ordinary and she doesn't know how to react so she's kind of like in an awkward position she's just kind of 
it just kind of goes with it and she just like i don't know she's just like a sad little puppy yeah she's cute yeah super but cute. our movie is not about sad little puppy or our podcast is not about sad little puppy faced uh, uh, British maids. Our mm, <laughs> podcast is about tradecraft. Yep. We better run down through our hits again. This is uh, here are my bests. Number three, the goons using the newspaper to cover their shots at Wallace on the ledge. Number two, Dagenhurst and his flunky using jargon when they're on an open radio when they're talking about killing someone. Don't actually talk about killing someone. Use, again, we're, we, I mean, it's the man who knew too little. We're scraping, we're scraping really hard for this shit. Number one best, keeping Spencer in the dark. Even though that came to bite them on the ass, I appreciated, and it was important in the movie, so like it's twofer, that, uh, their man Spencer was just sent in to do one job and there was no reason to tell him like, because we're planning on killing some ambassadors. So that was my number one. Yeah. Three. How about you? Your best again, remind us. My number three was, uh, uh, actually nothing to do with the main spy plot. It was when he went over to his brother's house and made a fool of himself in front of the fancy, uh, guests. And then they asked what he did, and then the wife was like, oh, he's in the movie business. And they were like, ah, that answers that. Uh, then my number two was the dressing room scene where he, like, uh, gave, gave uh, Boris the shake. And then my number one was the the pens with the syringes and how they executed the leg wrapping and how they executed just shooting him in the lobby with, like, uh, sticking him with the, pe- uh, the syringe. It was, it was very synchronized. Yeah. How about your worst? My worst is my number three was looking down the barrel when uh, Wallace just looks down the barrel of a gun, even though in his mind it's probably fake. It could be blanks or whatever, but still. Just, uh. And then my number two was he left the note that had Spencer's name and the address on the phone booth when he got the information. And then, uh, as both Todd and I agreed, the number one was poisoning all the candidates of, of these high elite spy masters or assassins. So, uh, yeah, we still gotta, we still gotta call it a, a spade, a spade. And a, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's dumb. Yeah. My number three, uh, I, I think I'm, I was trading it out, but, uh, whatever, you know, my, my, my first number three I had was Boris overestimating Wallace just based on one missed shot. That was pretty bad. Yeah. Um, the theater police, the theater people, and the police not thinking to ring up the client immediately after someone got shot. Yeah. Uh, and I think I wanted to trade out that thing with uh, Boris overestimating Wallace was also for the villains not, I'm not sure which one it was, but just basically overall bad tradecraft in this movie is people not making the call to the person that they should call (laughs) immediately after something happens. Like, okay, you just got a call that Spencer, your guy, Spencer, instead of doing his job, just tried to kill your friend. You have a radio that you could use to call Spencer and say, Hey buddy, you feeling all right? 
<laughs> what's going on with you? You know? Yeah. Yeah. But instead you you make a bunch of other calls. So like that's yeah, that's overall like the main bad tradecraft in here was just people not calling people when the right people when they should. Uh, okay. Which undermines my whole like clockwork thing I said about the movie at the beginning, but whatever. What's our redaction? It's I, I'm going to go with a 4.5. <laughs> Straight off Austin the gate. Powers. We have to save the 5 for Austin Powers. <laughs> I'm with you, buddy. No yeah. argument there. No yeah. argument, no discussion <laughs> needed. This is a highly redacted movie. It's yeah. got no basis in reality whatsoever. Except yeah. for maybe a couple of tiny little things. What what was our best again? Is our is either of our bests gonna save this? Keeping Spencer ah uh, yeah, yeah. Carpet yeah, car, car, compartmentalizing the information. There are a couple things. There, yeah, there are just a couple of things that barely saved this movie from being a five redacted rating. But as you said, we got to save that five. We got to save that five <laughs> for Austin Powers. Absolutely. And that's the end of our show. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us on Twitter at spies underscore like us. Visit us on our website at www.spieslikeus.net. You know, find out about upcoming episodes. Also, what will really help us out is if you give us a review on wherever you found our podcast, either on iTunes or your Android app or YouTube or wherever you listen to us. Uh, even if you didn't like the show, just give us a review. It'll help us give us feedback so we can make the show better. And it can also help other people who haven't found the show yet find out about us. Hey, Moira, initiate Protocol 9. Protocol 9 initiated. This podcast will self-destruct in 20 seconds. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.